Hello, good evening and welcome to season 2 episode 13 of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, aka STR8 Talk English on Twitter, aka the owner, operator and boss woman behind straighttalkingenglish.com and I am on my mission moving rapidly through all your GCSE literature texts. Today we are carrying on with Romeo and Juliet focusing specifically on Juliet and the Capulet family because they are very, very interesting people. So, let's kick it off. No more preamble. The writer Anna Jameson, writing in 1832, interestingly, one of the first female critics to tackle Shakespeare's heroines, claimed that all of Shakespeare's women, being essentially women, either love or have loved, or are capable of loving, but Juliet is love itself. Which is really, really nice. I mean, I would love that if someone said that about me, to be honest. Juliet, despite being love itself, is arguably more authentic than Romeo is. He, like, he learns everything by rote. He speaks in sonnets because that's how he's learned to speak to people. But the writer Rosalie Colley, writing in 1974, argues that Juliet's metaphoric daring is greater than Romeo's. She solves the sun, stars problem firmly and defiantly in favour of her image, while his imagery is less committed, less precise, less extreme. He speaks more than she by the book. Her conceit of little stars, which shall translate Romeo to classical immortality in a constellation, sends us back to his likeness of her to the sun. Her language honours the darkness in which her love is conceived and its ugliest, most forceful image cut him out in little stars, forebodes that love's violent end. That's referring to her speech, which is her waiting for her wedding night, which we're going to come on to in a little bit because it's really, really interesting. She is more mature than Romeo is. When he approaches her at the balcony, she says, we must wed. If your intention be honourable, then marriage is your purpose. Which, okay, okay, she's definitely more mature. While she is young and she is aged down, remember from the original story by Arthur Brooks, in the original story she's 16, in this production she's 14, she is still more mature than a 17 year old. And I mean, say what you want about that. Um, Say whether you think year nine is more mature than a year 12. I've met some who are, I've met some who definitely aren't. But in terms of her lifespan, she's actually fairly far through it. Thomas Paynell, writing in 1541, argues that nowadays, alas, if a man may approach to 40 or 60 years, men repute him as happy and fortunate. So, not quite middle-aged, but if she makes it to 40, she's doing pretty well. Those statistics are skewed a little bit because poor people die younger than rich people, infant mortality screws the like screws up the overall average but she's actually fairly far through her life which is shocking like what's the background though like where is Juliet coming from if she was real and the good thing is we actually have a really good reference for this this guy called Juan Luis Vives or Vives V-I-V-E-S was Mary the first Mary Tudor's 
tutor. He wrote a book called The Instruction of a Christian, not Christian, Christian woman that was reprinted in 1557. It was quite popular. He was a Catholic, obviously, as was Mary Tudor, but his ideas were seen as having this like royal patent, like if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. And I feel like I might use some of this advice for some of my some of my clients, some of my friends. Love is the dangerous kingdom of Venus. The miserable young woman who is entangled by love would be better to have broken a leg of her body. Love causes murder, slaughter, destruction of cities, of countries and nations. So if you fall in love, if you make a love match, basically your whole country is going to get ruined. It's going to be like a post-apocalyptic world. You should not have liked that person. And that may well be the advice that Juliet could have grown up with. Obviously, the only honourable way to pursue a relationship is marriage. And Vives again says it becometh not a maid to talk where her mother and father be in communication about her marriage. You stay silent and listen to what your mum and dad say they know best. Which interestingly makes Lady Capulet's consultation of Julia a little bit unusual. I mean she does go along with their wishes and she says you know I'll look to liking. But arguing that you know the very fact that Lady Capulet talks to her is strange. But luckily, Vives gives us some guidance on what a good husband should be. He should be good and wise rather than just fair, rich or noble. So if we look at Romeo, I mean, rich, yeah, probably, noble, yeah, fair, I mean, good looking. So depends on the actor, I guess. But for the purposes of this, let's assume yes, Leonardo DiCaprio, so yeah. He is exactly the person she would have been warned against falling for. He's not especially very good. I mean, he murders someone and he's not especially very smart, but you know, he is not who she should be going for. Now, Julia undergoes this like intellectual metamorphosis throughout the play, which I kind of love. If we see this as kind of a growing up, a coming of age story, then this is really beautiful. So this first scene where she is consulted by Lady Capulet and her nurse about what she wants to do about Paris, she is very childish. She only speaks seven lines in the whole scene and it's absolutely dominated by the nurse, representing probably how young she is. She's supposed to be this innocent. She meets Romeo and suddenly from deep inside, somehow she matches him in a sonnet. Whether we think she's educated or not, and I read somewhere that she's not supposed to be, something inside her blossoms from love and suddenly she's able to write this fabulous poetry. Her eloquence gets even richer by the balcony scene when she's in private. But when Romeo appears, she goes back into polite little girl mode. And she's like, oh no, we must be honorable. Yeah, when actually she's been expressing herself incredibly well. The monologue that she gives before her wedding night is really cool. It's called an epithet epithalamium e-p-i-t-h-a-l-a-m-i-u-m epithalamium and that is a special type of poem sung at weddings it's supposed to be it's a tithed version of this form 
But the revival of the classical genre in the Renaissance, according to Gary McCowan, probably prompted by the discovery of a manuscript by Catullus which contained two epithalamia, saw the lyric flourish across Europe. In England, Latin epithalamia, I really wish people had stopped saying that because I can't stay it, was sung at royal weddings and English poems were composed by poets as influential as Philip Sidney, Edmund Spencer, George Chapman, John Donne and Ben Jonson. McCowan asserts it would be odd for Shakespeare to have been ignorant of the genre and speculates his manifest interest in lyric poetry in the years 1592 to 94 extends into his subsequent writing of Romeo and Juliet. So her performing a poem to herself is reasonable. It's, it's a wedding poem. It's the night before her wedding. Well, she's got married. It's the night before she spends the night with Romeo, just before. But it's supposed to be written or sung in the character of a bridegroom singing it to his bride who is supposed to be shy or like unwilling to have sex with him and he is like persuading her. McCowan notes that perhaps the most striking feature of Juliet's speech is its pe peculiar reliance upon the second person an imperative mode of the verbs. Within 30 lines Juliet employs no fewer than 11 imperatives. Gallop, spread, come, learn, hood, come, 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 give, take, cut. We know that imperatives give instruction and we know that frequently Juliet, if she was real, would not fit into the typical model of what we'd expect from a Eliz an Elizabethan young woman. By giving the instructions and making it relatively sexually explicit, she's putting herself in the role of the, per of the aggressor, of the person taking charge. But it has this element of something ominous. Something is coming up. It gives us a foreshadowing through this form that something is going to happen. McCowan calls it an ominous set of literary precedents. It gives a violent aspect in the metaphor of battle. War is ameliorated to a game. But she doesn't give any social context to what she's saying. She just comes out with this poem. And McCowan says the absence of any social context for this epithalamium spoken in solitude alerts us to an ominous undertone. Rather than call for lamps to light the longed for night as was traditional, Juliet desires absolute darkness, the funereal gloom. It's all the more portentous given the dangers associated with night in classical and Renaissance literature. This inversion works to characterize Juliet's bold passion and awaken the audience's pity for a heroine who inauspiciously invokes night unaware that it is kin to that amorous death. Once again, Romeo and Juliet proved to be a play where generic innovation produces meaning. I've argued in the last one about Romeo that Romeo wished for death from the very second that he started talking. From the moment that he was talking about Rosaline, he wanted this destructive love. And we can argue that that's what Juliet is saying as well. She's linking darkness and like a lack of anything 
illuminating funeral no hope to what she believes love will be like so she's also foreshadowing and thinking about how love will lead to death when her dad confronts her about her crying and her lack of motivation to marry paris she enters into a classical debate we can argue the peak of her lyrical and poetic development is when she has her charnel house speech to father lawrence father lawrence friar lawrence she appears to spontaneously burst into this lengthy speech she's beautiful full of imagery and we can argue that maybe it's romeo that's prompted this her love has spurred her onward or maybe it's just her natural growing up which the love is linking to i really like juliet i think she's a great character i think there is so much that has been written about her that has been said about her i really really recommend that you do your own research great place to start is the british library website because they have some fantastic resources and articles but juliet herself is very precious to the Capulets. She is their only daughter. Liz Picard has said out of every hundred babies born alive it's been estimated that perhaps 70 survived to their first birthday but less than half saw their fifth. To her have survived to something approaching adulthood is really impressive and we know that the nurse lost a daughter herself. Her precious her value is seen through lord capulet's attitude to her he really cares for juliet and that's kind of part of his presentation of himself as comedy stereotype how shakespeare shows him at the beginning at least to be this sort of elderly out of touch boating dad it's where he shouts bring me my longsword and his wife is like what are you just gonna use it as a crutch like it's not gonna happen but he does the turn from amusing bumbling comic figure to someone more serious capulet is incredibly interesting because when the prince has a go at the two families after mercutio's death capulet defends him. The writer Robert N. Watson says, weary of bloodshed after the fatal sword fights, Verona's prince asks a potentially conciliatory question. Romeo slew him, he slew Mercutio, what who now the price of his dear blood doth owe? Seizing the opportunity to protect his son. Romeo's father answers, not Romeo prince, he was Mercutio's friend. His fault concludes, but what the law should end the life of Tybalt. But in the original version, that line is given to Lord Capulet. It's kind of weird that he would do that. Why exactly would he care for someone who killed his nephew? you. Watson again. The Capulet of Act 3 Scene 1 has recently undergone what must have been an extensive admonishment by the prince towards reconciliation and his vows of peace have been convincing enough to allow Paris to speak of the feud in the past tense. What seems most germane is the fact that Capulet has already praised Romeo while trying to restrain Tybalt from attacking him in Act 1 Scene 5. Abears him like a portly gentleman and to say truth Verona brags of him to be a virtuous and well-governed I would not for the, all the, wel the wealth of all this town here in my house do him disparagement. And then he has a go at Tibble, saying, am I the master here or you? It, he likes him. It's weird. These 
his comments at the start of Act 1, Scene 5, ignoring the bit with Tibble, kind of imply that he's endorsing their relationship. He says, Mary, tis time. Well said, my heart. More light, more light. What cheerly, my hearts. And even though those words could be fairly generic, the fact it's Mary, Mary, light, hearts, it, it makes a lot of sense, to be honest. I'm with that. I'm with that. I mean, Watson isn't convinced. He says, I am not convinced. Duh, that's terrible inference on my part. That Shakespeare intended to signal that Capulet was seeking a Montague son-in-law. But such a claim would be bolstered by the fact that Shakespeare shows us Capulet trying to defer any marriage to Paris for two more summers. But then hastening that marriage once the blood feud is renewed and Romeo exiled. So if he did have a secret plan to end the fighting himself, he's kept Paris on the back burner and now he knows his plan isn't going to work, he's like, well, yeah, go on then. Right? Frustration with the failure of an earlier grander plan would amplify his exasperation with Juliet's rejection of the renewed Paris match. Thus could explain exactly the violent reaction that's prevented readers from imagining him as a conciliator. So I, I seriously like this. I seriously like this as a theory that actually Capulet was planning Romeo and Juliet to get together the whole time. And with this theme of like missed encounters, bad luck, that would be the ultimate missed encounter. And like a lot with this play, a lot with a lot of things actually, um, Jekyll and Hyde especially, the problems could be solved if the characters literally just spoke to each other. Like if you just sat down and spoke to the person, all the problems would be solved. So you could argue that if Capulet had just come out with this scheme, the actually there'd be no feud if want to be alive this would be an amusing comedy and everyone's happy but neither house speaks ill of the other from that moment forward lady capulet's annoyed but they've been told off for biting at the end of act, well at the end of the prince's bit in act one scene one he says he's gonna have a go at the lords individually even tibble doesn't say anything about the montagues in general nobody mentions it really only thing that mentions after act three scene one is that Romeo is banished. That is a way of ending the feud and it adds another compelling instance to the dramatic irony that drives the play because Romeo and Juliet is a play that trades in near misses. The reason, it, well the reason that Watson implies this has been swapped is because editors and directors cannot hear Capulet's conciliatory voice because Juliet fatally fails to hear it and the the result is that readers and audiences don't even know what she missed or what we're missing. The bit where they have a go at each other just always seems like hurt feelings. Two people who really care for each other and their feelings are just so hurt. Is he one of the older generation who hasn't discovered his individualism as Romeo and Juliet have? Is he seeing his identity as part of a community and not separate? Are his feelings hurt because his beloved only daughter who has survived to somewhat adulthood is hurting herself and throwing what he thinks is a good opportunity back in her face so he overreacts since researching this i have a far more sympathetic view of old lord capulet to be honest 
Less so, well, kind of, Lady Capulet. She doesn't do that much. She is distant. She doesn't know Juliet's age, but the nurse does. However, she's a noble woman. She wouldn't necessarily be expected to nurse or raise her own child. And this bit is in the comic section of the play. So is it a subtle digger, you know, mums who don't know anything about their kids because the nanny's got them? She is powerful in female spaces. She overplanned Juliet's meeting with Paris. She is the cold leader of these female spaces in this women's sphere. But is this love? Like every every point I thought of in my notes has got a but. I don't know. Is this love because she knows Juliet will need a good husband? She's a good Tudor girl. The husband is the head of the family. She will be, in theory, ruled by him. She is strong. She's protective of Tybalt. She considers poisoning people after Tybalt is killed. Poison is a women's weapon. As I've put quotes around that, you can't hear me saying them. Because arguably, like, in general, female killers don't stab people. They poison them. This could be her giving the last echoes of the comedy bit. Like, oh, I'm so sad. I'm gonna put rat poison in his tea, that'll solve everything. And like, when I say it like that, it isn't actually that funny, but um, my friend's mum got a bunch of like vintage bottles that she got from like a car boot or something, and she puts like her cooking spices in them, so it's like chilli powder, salt, pepper, and she's got labels on it saying like cyanide, arsenic, you know, like just as a massive practical joke, so people will see her like putting what looks like cyanide in her coffee, but it's sugar. And that's quite funny. Like, it could be this comic aspect to it, or it could be her wielding power, her threatening to wield power. But she's swayed by Capulet, or she defers to him when Juliet refuses to marry. Does she not care because she's given up so quickly? Like, well, I've done all I can here, washing my hands now your dad's here or does she know about Capulet's hidden scheme and she's like well no I'm not touching this he's taking it this is his project or is she just like a nice traditional Tudor woman who's like well I've tried my best the husband is the head this is you know this is his job this is not my job but I did a little bit of maths surprisingly for an English teacher I did my little bit of numeracy because she says um younger than you were mother's maid and she implies that she was younger than Juliet when she was born so assuming she's 13 14 when Juliet was born which we think is dodgy now and it is dodgy but logistically possible since she would have had puberty then Lady Capulet would be about 27 28 ish Capulet, Lord Capulet, is portrayed as being an old man. Tudor wisdom, folk wisdom, said that partners who have, if you have a partner who's about the same age, it makes the happiest marriage, which I'm quite pleased about, to be honest, uh, because my ex was six years older than me and he was a loser. And my boyfriend now, Mr. Straight Talking English, as I refer to him on Twitter, is about six weeks older than me. So clearly an insurmountable age gap and I will give up on him as well. Or Tudors have got it right and it's all working and I think it's that second one. But second marriages in Tudor times on average had much bigger age gaps 
Not necessarily older man, younger woman, but it could be older woman, younger man. Depends entirely on what people could bring to it. So a widow who had inherited her husband's house, her husband's business, could be a good catch for an apprentice wanting to take over. Similarly, older man, maybe noble, he's a good catch for another family who want to have their daughter involved with his business, as well as the obvious dirty old man or cougar scenarios. Like, let's not pretend that's a modern thing. That's reasonable. So, is Juliet a second marriage, late in life baby? I kind of think yes. Because Capulet's supposed to be old, so let's say between 40 and 60, according to the source I read at the start. Lady Capulet is under 30, so she's the. Juliet is the second chance baby. That's why they're so obsessed with her. That's why mum is like scheming for her the whole time time to make the best possible marriage. That's why the dad wants her so badly to be happy. That's why she is their precious little jewel. But ultimately, she is independent. Shakespeare's got this tradition of writing about strong daughters. Catherine in Taming of the Shrew. Desdemona in Othello, who also defies her father's wishes and has a secret marriage, which also ends in tragedy because Othello it's a tragedy yeah he always writes these strong willful daughters and the fact i'm gonna end you on is shakespeare's daughter originally susanna shakespeare then got married we know from legal records that in and around stratford and warwickshire a number of people were called up to court fined whatever for missing church shakespeare's daughter susanna was a recusant someone who was refusing to attend church we don't know why like is she a catholic did she not feel like it had she lost her face had she broken her leg was it well cold who knows but he would have heard that his daughter was breaking the law he himself had this strong daughter doing what she wanted because her husband was not fined as a recusant she was so she was defying, we're assuming, her father and her husband. So, is Juliet Shakespeare's tribute to his own daughter? Are all of his strong, independent daughters that he writes a tribute to the lovely Susanna Shakespeare? It's been an episode of questions. I've got to say, it's just been 24-7 questions today. I mean, I found out a lot of stuff, but whatever I found out, it seemed just to lead down more rabbit holes, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So I called it there. That is your update on the Capulet family. Next episode, I'm going to be tackling the minor characters. No, not people that live down mines, or characters that are children, because that's basically everyone in this play is a child. I'm going to be talking about Father Lawrence and the nurse and the potion because it is kind of important it's not just a device str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com recommend me to your friends because i'm on spotify instagram facebook itunes stitcher Castbox, and anywhere else that will have me i'm not on snapchat because i just really really hate it have a lovely lovely evening if you are about to take your lit exam this week i wish you all the best if you are a teacher of a lit exam student i wish you restful sleep and i will return shortly to tell you all about friar lawrence